The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back, boys and girls, to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, flying solo again. I'm kind of digging flying solo. I got to tell you, not too bad, not too bad. All right, so let's do some business first. First, a story, though. First, a story. Sorry, I'm just in my mic. <laughs> so I'm on the phone with everybody's favorite person, Jennifer Dahl, Jen Dahl, out of Florida. And we're talking, and we're talking about where her brother David lives down in Boca. <clears throat> what she meant to say was that there is a lot of Jewish people there. What came out of her mouth was freaking epic. And I know, Jen, you're going to kill me for saying this, but I'm still laughing my ass off. She said, yep, it's infested with Jewish people. Like, well, I'm sorry, infested? Like, uh, like, like bugs? No, no, no! I didn't mean that. People are gonna think. Don't tell anybody that because they're gonna think that 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 I'm a racist. Oh, I'm, oh, easy there, Frau Jen from the Nazi camp. I told her I did not see that coming, and she's laughing. So yeah, <laughs> I thought it was fucking hilarious. <laughs> All right, so let's start getting into this one. You guys ready? You guys are going to love the title of this one. You ready? Because you probably saw it when you pulled it up. Jack the Stripper. So when I first heard of this case, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, oh, wow, like, chicka wow wow, like, Jack's a stripper, and he's working the pole. You know, I'm able with the cable and, you know, uh, working for Chippendales. But that's not the case. That's not the case at all. And the case is, uh, this is nothing like being a stripper. I should know. I, I like to think I'm a stripper. A reverse stripper, by the way. Because when I get out there, I tell the ladies, look, there's some hot guys behind the curtain here. And I don't get off the stage with my fat ass until I get 300 bucks in the G-string. And you'd be surprised how fast it fills up. But warning to the women who want to put change in my undershorts, knock it off. It took me a week to get a penny out of there. Jesus Christ. Okay. Sunday, February 2nd, 1964 in London. It's, it's a, it dawned, and it's peaceful, and it's beautiful outside. Although the temperature was freezing, the city was, like I said, they're, they're at peace. They're, they're doing good. A man, to try, a man tried to take advantage of a clear morning walk with his dog along a footpath near the Hammersmith Bridge along the River Thames. I'm sorry, Thames. Jesus, I can't read. I swear to God. And as the fog began to lift, he stopped for a moment just to soak up the scene. Which, hey... I've done that. I've walked along the Columbia River here in Washington. Been a brisk, you know, cold morning. And, you know, you stop and you just kind of look at, wow, it's peaceful. It's nice. Things are happening, right? So he's standing there. And he saw something that irritated him. Lying along the bank, he saw what he thought was a mannequin. He's, you know, he's, he's sitting there going, God, you know, people, why are you littering? What the hell's wrong with you? And coincidentally, I do the same thing. People who leave the trash behind and look at what douchebags. Uh, he found it more annoying because on that stretch of the Thames had been plagued with the pollution because people thought it would be a perfect place to dump the trash. However, when he walked down to take a closer look, he his displeasure quickly transformed to horror. What appeared to be a mannequin from a distance 
was actually a, the new remains of a deceased woman. So you can just imagine this poor guy. It's the 60s, so, you know, there's not as, I don't know. I, I would imagine this is a hell of a lot more scarier. Because there's not like a whole lot of horror flicks and shit like that they are going to scare the fuck out of you. Now, now you're looking at a dead body, and all you want to do was have a peaceful walk with your goddamn dog. People fuck things up all the time. Although she probably wasn't the first victim of the year in London, she was considered to be the first victim of the unidentified serial killer that terrorized London during the mid-60s. All six women were young prostitutes, very petite in figure, you know, in stature. Every one of those victims was found naked, uh, and they had endured an extremely violent attack and death. Some were also mutilated before they're discarded like trash by the person responsible for their terror. The infamous uh, mysterious killer had been dubbed Jack the Stripper. And the series of deaths is referred to as the Hammersmith Nude Murders. So, the violent crimes were committed during uh, Great Britain's swinging 60s. The nation was of a cultural, rev- they're in the middle of a cultural revolution. And they were leading the world with their fashion, film, and music that was being recorded. Because, you know, the 60s gave us things like, it gave us, uh, like, the Beatles and, uh, uh, who else did it give us? Uh, I think maybe Beatles were 50s. But anywho, the, you know, the Stones and, and you know, uh, the, the Who. Great, great bands, great bands. So, an eerie or similar, an eerily similar event 73 years before is what we're going to tag right now. You ready? What made the case of Jack the Stripper so bizarre was that an eerie similar event 73 years before plagued the streets of Whitechapel in East, at the east end of London. Approximately 11 young prostitutes were found dead and mutilated from April 1888 through February of 1891. However, only five are officially credited with the infamous unsolved case of Jack the Ripper. Those five women are referred to as the canonical five. God dang, I swear I need more caffeine. So Marianne Nichols of Jack the Ripper was found dead on August 31st of 1888 at approximately 3.40 a.m. Ann Chapman was September 5th of the same year at about 6 o'clock in the morning. Elizabeth Stride was September 30th at 1 a.m. Catherine Adels was found September 30th as well at approximately 1.45 a.m. And, of course, Mary Jane Kelly, November 9th of 1888 at about 10.45 in the morning. Now, Mary Jane is generally considered the final victim of Jack the Ripper. However, the official police reports give the details of four additional victims. Rose Maylett was found December 20th of 1888. Alice McKenzie was found July 17th of 1889. The uh, the Pinchel Street Torso, an, an unidentified woman, was found September 10th of 1889. And Frances Cole was found February 13th of 1891. Nearly 73 years to the day the first victim credited to Jack the Stripper 
was discovered in West London. So you can imagine the terror that would soon grip all of London, you know, as more as more victims are, are surfacing. Similar to the case of Jack the Ripper, which resulted in a large manhunt in, in British criminal history. The perpetrator in the mid-60s was also never caught. So before I get into the details of this case, I want to make it clear, depending on the source, the ages and the background of each victim can differ greatly. That being said, I did everything I could do to to be respectful to the victims and their families by using as accredited sources as I could. So while I researched this case, I was shocked to find out that there was lots of information available despite the fact that very few verifiable sources were available. Here's why. Jack the Stripper's murder, murders resulted in a larger victim count than Jack the Ripper. However, the 19th century killings resulted in the largest manhunt in the history of, of, of British police, the, the British police force. The reason... There is so few books written or documentaries made about these deaths. Mine have to do something with the second largest manhunt uh, in Britain that occurred a little over a decade later. That was the case of Peter Sutcliffe, by the way. We featured him, the notorious, infamous Yorkshire Ripper. However, considering that it's Britain's largest unsolved murder case, you would think that there would be more accurate information documenting you know, the, the case details. People who live and or grew up in West London are among those who are more shocked about this lack of attention than anyone else. They give, uh, they can give you exclusive or extensive details on every location where the victims were found. But the majority of them are unable to provide information about the case itself. Hopefully, by covering this case and providing as much accurate information as we possibly can verify, I can shed some light on this lesser-known murder spree. From what I understand, none of the women uh, were what some would call, you know, West the West London transplant. In other words, they lived locally. Okay, so they didn't just move there. They, they, they've been living there. But they weren't born and raised in the area. They were either natives of Ireland or grew up in other areas of Great Britain. In order to support themselves, they turned to the oldest profession in the world, prostitution. Most women are said to have worked the streets in the area of Shepherd's Bush. I just have to laugh at Shepherd's Bush because I'm a pervert, but I died Greg. The location of their bodies included Bentford, Hammersmith, Action, Kensington, uh, Ealing, and Chriswick, all of which were five miles or less from Shepherd's Bush. Although these cases are currently predominantly residential, they would be classified as suburban with... uh, I'm sorry. They would be (laughs) classified as suburban with uh, affluent as well as poverty-plagued neighborhoods. However, at the time of the murder that the murders occurred in the 60s, they were mostly industrial with few working class residents. In, in Chriswick and Brentford, there were factories lined up along the river. 
approximately four miles north in Acton, or it could be Acton, and ailing, large industrial estates dominated the area. So, although these weren't very far from the bustling environment of London, they still weren't considered you know, very prosperous by any means. It was also where prostitutes walked the streets and their unknown killer hunted his prey. Like I mentioned above, the first murders officially associated with this case was the body of the woman that washed up on the shore on the River Thames, near Hammersmith Bridge. However, after doing the research, I think that two women murdered prior to that, who I feel may have been victims of Jack the Stripper as well. Those victims, uh, I'm sorry, those are the victims I want to talk about first. So, possible victim number one was 21-year-old Elizabeth Fig, and she was killed in Duke's Meadow. The first potential victim, like I said, was 21-year-old Elizabeth Fig. Uh, she was from uh, Cheshire, England, and when she moved to London, she took up residence in the area of Chriswick. She just described she was described as a young, kind of petite, quiet woman. As you'll find out a little later. This is, I'm sorry, I got the burps. You'll find out later, this is the reason I think that she was one of the victims killer, or one of the ones that was killed by this unknown killer. Um, well, that and the fact that she lived below the poverty level in her regular job. So she felt the only way that she could make ends meet was, of course, to, you know, prostitute herself, you know, in her off time. Like one minute she's in a typing pool, next minute she's blowing dudes. Reports indicate Elizabeth was last seen alive sometime on the evening of June 16th of 1959. It was said that she was seen getting into an unknown vehicle with a man behind the wheel. Around that time, the sun rose the next morning. By the time the sun had come up, her remains were discovered along the path in Duke's Meadow Park near the River Thames. When her body was found... She was naked from the waist down. The upper portion of her dress had been ripped, exposing her breasts. The marks on her neck suggested her cause of death was strangulation. The authorities assumed that she was murdered by the man who was driving the vehicle that she allegedly had gotten into the night before. However, since the witness who came forward to make those claims couldn't give a positive description of the man in the car, the leads quickly dried up. And, of course, the case became cold because they got nothing to go on. The second victim, let's talk about her for a minute. The second second woman, I think, that could possibly be a victim in this case is 22-year-old Gwyneth Reese. She grew up in Wales but had moved to Essex, England before settling in West London with her sister. Similar to Elizabeth, she was described as a young petite woman who felt the only way that she could make ends meet was, of course, turning to prostitution. So, Gwyneth's remains were discovered near the same river, okay, of Thames, in Mortlake. That area just happened to be across the river, by the way, from where Elizabeth's body was found in Duke's Meadow Park. (laughs) So, my reason for including these. There's a reason why that I'm including these in this report. Both women were known to work in the sex trade. They were similar in appearance to the six victims credited to the killer. And finally, the remains were found within about a half mile vicinity of each other, which makes sense, right? 
When I tried to find the reason they weren't listed as official victims, I wasn't able to find any real answers to the question. I'm only speculating, but I think the reason might be have something to do with the fact that the other six women were murdered within a short span between 1964 and 65. Or perhaps it could be because Elizabeth and Gwyneth didn't show any signs of being mutilated. However, we all know that serial killers evolve over time, so, so I really feel strong that there's a strong possibility that these were still two victims of Jack the Stripper. So let's go into known victim number one. As I mentioned earlier, the first known victim associated with the case was discovered on February 2nd of 1964. She's a 30-year-old mother of two. Hannah Tailford was her name. Her autopsy revealed uh, she was pregnant with her with her child at the time of her. Let's try that again. I'm sorry, guys, that I'm skipping and stumbling today. Anyway, an autopsy showed that she was she was pregnant at the time that her life was taken. As well as all the victims, including the two listed above, she was slender and petite. What some people might not know is that when the remains were discovered and the authorities conducted their investigations, they didn't think her death was a result of foul play. By the time her body was found on the banks of the river uh it had been more than a week from the time she was reported missing so when the dog walker saw her along the path she was not only naked her underwear had been stuffed into her mouth um however despite what people think they did conduct an investigation well kind of somewhat Considering the time that they had with the uh, wherewithal to do study about the tide flow to, of the river at the time that she was reported missing to the time that her remains were found. So, you know, there's not a lot of resources. They're trying to figure out the, the tide flows, shit like that. Although she had gone missing over a week before, they conducted, uh, they concluded that she had been entered the water in some area of Duke's Meadow Park approximately 24 hours before her remains were found. Granted, they couldn't explain why she wasn't wearing any clothes or why she had her underwear stuck, stuffed in her mouth. Maybe it's an effort to close the case and avoid, you know, causing public panic or, you know. So they ruled her, they ruled her death a suicide. Yeah, they ruled it a suicide with underwear stuff. How many people commit suicide by walking into the water and saying, hey, before I do that, I'm going to put my nasty-ass underdrawers in my face hole. Like, for real. Jesus, disgusting. <laughs> However, considering she was a known prostitute, there's a strong possibility, like we've seen here in the United States, that they weren't really all interested in conducting a thorough investigation. It would be long before they had to reconsider their conclusion regarding Hannah's death. So let's get on to a lady by the name of Irene Lockwood. Okay, Her body was found in the river in Chriswick on April 8th of 64. She was a 26-year-old, originally from uh, Notting... This is Nottinghamshire. I've never heard of that. From Nottinghamshire. I think it's just Nottingham. But anyway... Like the other victims, she was described as a slender, petite woman standing only about five foot tall. Uh, when her remains were discovered, she was naked in the river, floating face down. 
During the autopsy, the medical examiner determined that her cause of death was the result of strangulation. However, it was the discovery of Irene's body in the location when the authorities realized that, at, that or at least you know, kind of publicly announced, Hannah didn't commit suicide. They also determined it was extremely possible they had a serial killer at large. At the point they officially linked Irene's death to Gwyneth and, and Hannah's, that's when they said, hey, these are all linked. But for some unknown reason, they later stated Gwyneth wasn't an official victim of Jack the Stripper. So once the, once the press notified was notified uh, that there was yet another young petite woman found dead in the area, they began publishing sensational stories because, hey, it sells papers, right? It didn't seem to matter if the victims were said to be known prostitutes. They all, all they cared about were the headlines splashing across the publications to be, you know, and, and the publications basically wrote themselves. They, you know, get splashed. And we see that in media today. They'll give you something, you know, like, um, uh, Buffalo runs over a man. And then they write the story below because that's what's going to catch your attention. Why'd the buffalo run over the man? I'm going to read that shit. Or listen to it. This was especially true when they were quickly able to make the link with Jack's murder, with, with the murders committed by Jack the Stripper nearly 80, or, I'm sorry, Jack the Ripper 80 years prior. That's, that's how the killer became dubbed Jack the Stripper. Because, you know, he's killing and he's not the Ripper, but he's stripping him down. So the first, uh, it was approximately three weeks after Irene's body was discovered when the authorities were called to the scene of another murder. The victim was a 22-year-old Helen Barthamy, a Scottish native looking at the lock with a haggis. She originally moved to London because she desperately wanted to find her fortune. Unfortunately, her dreams were, you know, yet to be realized because in order to make ends meet, she felt, once again, she had to turn to, to prostitution. Any hope that she had of a future was completely cut short when her murderer, when her murder remains were found uh, on April 24th of 64. However, unlike the other victims, she wasn't found near the river. Helen's body instead was disposed of in an alley in Brentford. So right away, the authorities noticed two things with her body that they didn't notice with the other victims. The first significant find, Helen's front teeth were missing. From that point forward, the acts became part of Jack the Stripper's ritual. The second significant find on her body was uh, they found small flecks of industrial paint these discoveries would be the first big break that they would have in the case. It was shortly after that that the authorities developed their own theory that the serial killer that they were hunting was more likely an industrial worker who came into contact with those paint flakes in, flakes in his position of what he did. So he's painting, right? Uh, it was even possible that that is where he held the victims, either alive or dead, in his place of employment, you know, where they kind of figured where he could take his time, figure it out, and dispose of them. So now they got to figure out where this dude's hiding out, right? In any other murder investigation, especially in the case of a serial killer, 
any plausible theory was productive. However, even though they had their, their suspicions, they weren't able to prevent the killer from striking again. So as described by uh, Eleanor O. Ovens, who the fuck is that, from Newcastle Mail, Mary Fleming was 30 years old and the mother of four kids who was born in Scotland, another Scottish lassie, but grew up in Newcastle. She had turned to prostitution when her marriage fell apart, and her body was discovered on a residential street in Chriswick uh, on the morning of uh, July 14th of 64. Her front teeth were missing. She had been strangled, and her body was found unclothed. Several residents said that they heard a car reverse and then speed off overnight. And the telltale paint flecks were found on Fleming's skin. But in an age before forensic science, as we know it, you know, it's still not enough. So they can't. So in, in today's society, it, with today's technology, when they have something like um, fibers, okay, or prints or paint flecks, they can pretty well nail it down to the manufacturer. Sorry, lighten the cigarette. And they can also kind of limit, you know, nail it down to what the application for that paint is. So, you know, like there's certain kind, there's certain chemicals that go into car paint, or you know, paint that you would use on a house, or you know, uh, paint that you would use on furniture. And they can nail it down to like, hey, this is in it, like a, it's an industrial car paint, and it's used on this make and model of cars, that type of thing. The stripper's fifth victim uh, was discovered at the end of November of 64, uh, and it was different. She was short like the others. Her body uh, was discovered strangled, naked, missing the front teeth like the others, and her skin was covered in paint flecks like the others. But she was discovered in High Street, Kensington, still in West London, but in another world to the killer's industrial suburban stomping grounds. This was a fashionable part of London that was enjoying the swinging 60s, you know, it's really profitable, everybody's having a good time, and the victim's identity was in keeping with that. She was Margaret McGowan, another Scottish woman who was working as a prostitute under the alias of Frances Brown. But... At the higher end of the trade. So, you know, she's not your typical streetwalker. She's what you would call an escort. So here's the difference for you boys and girls. Hypothetically speaking, that I would know about this. No, I don't frequent hookers. So, you've got like, here in Portland, you have like 82nd. And you have uh, Sandy Boulevard. And you got Burnside. That's where your low-end hookers are. Okay, you can drive by there and you see them all the damn time. But then... You've got hookers that have a more wealthy clientele. So these are the call girls that will come to your, your home and they're, you know, they're well made up and they, they act like a real girlfriend. They're not just like, hey, I'll blow you for 20 bucks. You know, you're going to pay top end for them. So she's a high end hooker. Uh, it's okay. Higher. Okay. The 21-year-old's the, the clients included businessmen and politicians, and she had testified with Christine Keeler at Mandy Rice Davis's 
uh, at Stephen's Ward Stephen Ward's trial in the midst of the infamous Profumo scandal. I have no fucking idea what that is. Um, this was actually written by my co-host Tammy, so I'm kind of just reading it over. <laughs> So she had last been seen by her uh, by a friend, and she cl- uh, cl- climbed into a client's car in October. And when her body was discovered a month later, the friend was able to tell the police what kind of car it was—a Ford Zodiac. Which I'm a huge Ford fan. I don't know what a Zodiac is. I'm gonna have to look that shit up. And gave a rough description of what the guy looked like. Uh, it was the biggest break that the case had had yet. Right. And it still would not lead them to capture this killer. The final victim that was discovered was found on February of 1965 in February in Huron Industrial Estates in Ealing. Bridget O'Hara, I'm pretty sure she's got Irish. I think we're going to get to that. Also known as Birdie, was 20, a 28-year-old Irish immigrant. Ah, there we go. Who, like most of the victims, struggled with her place in London. So she turned to sex work to support herself. She had been missing since the 11th of January until an electrician discovered her body uh, at dawn on February 16th. This confirmed to the police their suspicions that the killer stored his victim's bodies before disposing of them. So... London's Metropolitan Police had uh, made some progress in pursuit of the killer, but their search was ultimately, it, it, it was proven fruitless because there's just not enough to go on. And like I said, technology was very different than it is today. After the discovery of Bridget O'Hara, Scotland Yard recalled one of its top detectives, John DuRose, uh, from his vacation to lead the investigation. Nicknamed Five Day Johnny, for his apparent ability to solve cases within five days. So this dude is a pimp daddy of solving this shit. So DeRose, uh, yeah, DeRose mobilized hundreds of officers and had them interview practically every industrial worker in West London, including all 7,000 workers on the Huron Industrial Estates. He also ordered plainclothes officers to patrol the main roads leading in and out of central London London at night, recording license plates and making notes of any cars that they saw on multiple occasions. DuRose settled on the theory that the suspect was a small man, hence his targeting of smaller women, whose job exposed him to spray paint and who perhaps worked at night and had knowledge of a secure kind of lockup. You know, so he's got a place to hide him, which kind of makes sense, right? The investigator was in, the, the investigation, it's, it, it was intensifying a lot. And sure enough, O'Hara's body would lead police to another key in the discovery. She exhibited all the signs of the stripper victims, but her skin was burnt and slightly mummified, indicating that her corpse had been stored somewhere warm. So if it's mummified, I would say warm and dry. Just a few yards from the bo- where the body was discovered, police found a lockup that had been tra- uh, that had a transformer. 
Not like, you know, Autobots or anything, like an electrical thingamajigger, um, which could have been uh, what kept the body warm. Opposite the lockup was a spray paint shop. And the paint from the shop was found to match the paint on O'Hare and the other victims. The police had found the killer's storage spot. That's the bottom line of this. John DeRose explicitly called the press co- uh, a press conference in which he somewhat truthfully suggested his force was close to catching the killer and completely falsely claimed to have narrowed the list of suspects down to 20 men. But an arrest would never be made. Just like that, the killings stopped. And the police quietly shelved this case without ever solving it. So let's talk about some suspects, okay? One of the reasons the police shelved the case was that their prime suspect committed suicide. His name was Mungo Ireland. What a fucking name, Mungo. Uh, And he was a middle-aged Scot. Not me, Scott, but like Scottish guy who worked as a security guard on the Huron Trading Estates and had uh, access to the killer's lockup. In the nineteen seven, in a 1970 interview, John DeRue hinted that the killings had been committed by a married father uh, who, who, who could only identify as Big John. Ireland, who already knew the uh, he, he already knew that the police were you know kind of watching him took this as a sign that he was about to be arrested and soon after he killed himself leaving a note for his wife explaining that he couldn't stick it out any longer so could ireland have been the killer the police certainly thought so and officially considered the case closed once he died he certainly did have access to the storage unit that was identified uh, as a place where you know the bodies were kept. Uh, and his regular night shift would have afforded him the opportunity to take the bodies there without ever being seen. But according to Jane Lorison in, uh, at the uh, Chriswick Herald, recent research suggested that Ireland was back in his native Scotland when several of the murders occurred. So let's talk about another uh, possible suspect here, okay? In April of 64, 57-year-old Kenneth Archibald strode into the police station in Notting Hill and voluntarily confessed the murders, uh, the murder of Irene Lockwood. Police were stunned and couldn't believe their luck, but immediately began to doubt Archibald's story. For a start, there was no evidence that he had been anywhere near the scene of the crimes, nor had he any idea of where the murder locations were. His story was incoherent, and though he stood trial in 1964, he was quickly found not guilty. It seems that Archibald wasn't in full command of his faculties when he made the original confession. Another possible suspect is Freddie Mills. Now, Freddie Mills uh, was a boxing champion, who was involved in the uh, in, in organized crime. What's interesting about him, though, uh, that most London... Uh, what's interesting about him is the, that most London gangsters, tripping over my tongue, of the time, including the, uh, in, the notorious Cray twins, were convinced uh, he was the murderer. 
Secondly, he was killed in 1965, which is the same year the killing stopped. But there's not much more evidence to support the theory. Besides, if the killer was thought to have been, oh, I don't know, diminutive, then a five foot eleven boxer, cha- boxing champion, probably not your guy. Then there's the mystery police officer. Some of the top detectives in the investigation uh, in the investigation suspected that the killer was one of their own. That he had to have, uh, he, he would have had to have some inside knowledge that kept him safe from capture. This could explain why he was able to evade the increased police patrols, especially by the river. Again, however, there's not much evidence to support this. This is, this is where it gets interesting, by the way. Harold Jones, who, was all, who also went by the name Harry Jones, or Harry Stevens, or Harry Palm, I don't care, whatever Harry kind of person he is, was seemingly a quietly a quiet man in out oh god damn from abertory i don't know anyway south wales i'm just gonna go with that i can't pronounce the name of the town he moved to london in 1940 and lived a a pretty much an anonymous life with his wife and uh and his daughter at several addresses in the hammersmith area throughout the 60s but He's a tempting, he's tempting, he is a tempting suspect. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm just going to screw this one up, ain't I? But he's a tempting suspect because there's a reason he went by different names. And because there's a reason he had left South Wales. In his hometown of Abertilly, Tillery, whatever it is, Harold Jones was anything but anonymous. In 1921, a 15-year-old Jones was convicted of the brutal murders of two, two young girls in the small mining town. The details of his crimes are chilling. He lured 8-year-old uh, Frida Berno uh, to the back of his family's shop, strangled her, and dumped her body in a nearby street. He was, a, he was arrested. For this, and then, but acquitted due to you know lack of evidence. Upon his acquittal, he was welcomed back into the town like a hero. Like, yay, we knew you didn't do it. You're such a good boy. Blah blah blah. All that good happy horse shit. Townspeople were convinced that he had been set up by London detectives who had been sent to uh, assist the investigation. One man who welcomed his hearty. Uh, him heartily was George Little, a next-door neighbor and close friend of the Jones family. Just days later, Harold Jones lured, uh, lured George's 11-year-old daughter, Florence Little, into his home and murdered her, too. So, yeah, so much for being a good friend, right? Her body was discovered in Jones's family attic, and it was young Harold's father who furiously chased his son through the streets to apprehend him. I would do that. I'd do that to my kids too. Like to be honest, if I came home and found a dead body and I knew it was my son Jacob, I'd chase his ass down too, and I'd whoop it before he better hope the damn cops show up before I could done whooping him. I dead Greg. His tender age shamed him from the hangman's noose, and he 
instead served 20 years in prison for both murders. When he was released in 1941, he often returned uh, to his parents' home and even made sure he was seen visiting his victims' graves. Yeah, maybe to show remorse? I doubt it, but hey, makes a good show, right? Or perhaps something more creepy or even more sinister. Regardless, the folks of his small town were not too keen on him being back in the area, and Jones decided to start afresh in London, where he eventually married and became a father himself. His past crimes alone are not enough you know, to say for certain that he's Jack the Stripper, but there is circumstantial evidence. First, there's the fact that he was a proven killer and had strangled someone to death before. Okay, he had accidentally slit the throat of a of poor uh, Florence Little, by the way. And had a habit of storing bodies before getting rid of them. That's, that's the first part of this. What is also consistent is the choice of victims. Small, vulnerable people who were, you know, diminutive, who the diminutive Jones could overpower. He was known to have, have had lived very close to the area where the Hammersmith murders had occurred. He even lived within four streets of both Hannah Telford, Telford and Bridget O'Hara. And the murders stopped around the same time that Jones was struck down by, a, by bone cancer. From which he would die, by the way, in 1971. Perhaps the most striking of all, Jones was known to have been employed as a metal worker and caretaker at the Huron Industrial Estates in Ealing. Due to the poor record keeping, though, in the mid 20th century, the investigators on the Hammersmith murders never made the link between their case and convicted, uh, you know, the convicted child killer that's living in their area. Indeed, the link was made in the 2000s by a Welsh writer by the name of Niels Milkins. Ah, that's a fuck me up there. He was researching for his book about the murders that happened in Jones's small town of Albuquerque, and oh, there we go, and realized that Jones had moved back to Hammersmith. He became convinced that Jones was the mysterious Hammersmith murderer and is backed up by professor, uh, professor of criminology, David Wilson, who introduced himself to his uh, story, to the story uh, with, BBC, with the BBC, BBC documentary in which he examined the case and put the rap firmly on Jones. If I had to suggest who killed, who the killer was, I, I would also be inclined to say it was Harold Jones. But ultimately, we will never know for sure. What we do know is that at least six, possibly eight innocent women lost their lives to this cruel, sadistic killer. Some of them could still have been alive today had their, body, had, uh, had their lives not been so brutally cut short. Their children are still alive today, having grown up without their mothers. One positive aspect of this case not being widely known is that the killer does not have the same macabre notoriety as his Victorian predecessor, whose, fam whose infamy overshadows the stories of his victims. 
But then by the same token, the Hammersmith victims are also not widely known. It's for this reason that I'm going to end with a piece on them. Elizabeth Vig, she was born in 1938 and was killed in 1959. Gwyneth Rees, born 1941, died 1963. Hannah Tailford, born 1933, died 1964. I'm sorry, 1964. Irene Lockwood, born 1937, died 1964. Hannah Bartholomew, Bartholomew, yeah, that's it. Born 1941, died 1964. Mary Fleming, 1933 to 1964. Margaret McGowan, 1943, 1964. And Bridget O'Hara, 1936 to 1935. Tell you what, boys and girls, you can join us on Citizens of Brutal Nation. Give me your thoughts on this. I really would like to know this because after reading this, because this is the first time I've even read the whole thing. That uh, so this was written up by Tammy Underwood, and uh, it's the first time I've actually read everything about. It. I mean, I've seen little snippets here and there on documentaries and stuff like that, but uh, really interesting case. Let me know your thoughts on it. I'd like to interact. Let's let's discuss this. This is this is a, definitely a good case to discuss. And remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Go on to Facebook, as I had requested from all of you, and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. And by the way, spread the word. Thank your friends to join us, too, because, you know, we're trying to get that uh, that social media presence up a little bit higher than what it is. This show's copyrighted 2024 by Twisted Blue LLC. All right, so reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, they're lying, thieving bastards. And we will talk to you all later on. Bye-bye.